This is Ed Cashmark, the Everyday Economist. Keep my eye on the economy every day for you, with no bluster, no bias, and no bull. May 13, 2020. A couple of uh, releases today. The first one was the mortgage back or the um, mortgage bankers association mortgage applications uh, report, which showed a 0.3% increase in the composite index for mortgage applications. Purchase index was up 11%, while the refinance index was down 3%. And just a quick look at mortgage rates. Uh, yes, to, for today, it was actually 3.19% on a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. So mortgage rates are still uh, on the very, very low end of the recent range, and I, I do believe these are record lows as well. So again, if you can get out there, it's a great time to buy a house. But even if you don't have to leave the home or you can't leave your home, it's a great time to refinance your, your mortgage if you can. The other major release today was PPI, in other words, Producer Price Index, which is the prices that are paid for, or prices that are received actually for uh, uh, goods that are produced rather than consumed, which is what, you know, we got the consumer price index yesterday. This is the producer price index for today. So, and looking at producer prices gives us a glimpse as to what consumers might pay down the line. So it's kind of a, a leading indicator of consumer prices sometimes. It's not always the, the case, but sometimes. So the, the numbers are uh, the uh, producer price index for final demand which is the last stage in the producer and the production cycle for March was down 0.2%. The forecast for April was down 0.5% and the actual was minus 1.3%. So almost three times as big of a decline than forecast. Year over year change was 0.7% in March. Forecast for April was minus 0.2%. Actual was minus 1.2%. So six times bigger than expected. And the core rate, which is uh, not including food and energy month over month, in March was 0.2%. Forecast was zero, a minus 0.1% decline for April. Actual was minus 0.3%. And year over year, the core rate was 1.4% in March, expected to be 1% in April. And the actual was just 0.6%. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which puts out the report, had this to say. The producer price index for final demand declined 1.3% in April, seasonally adjusted, the Euro's Bureau of Labor Statistics reported today. This decrease is the largest since the index began in December 2009. Final demand prices fell 0.2% in March and 0.6% in February. On an, adjusted, on an unadjusted basis, the final demand index moved down 1.2% for the 12 months ended in April, the largest decline since falling 1.3% for the 12 months ended in November 2015. In April, over 80% of the decrease in final demand index can be traced to a 3.3% drop in prices for final demand goods as opposed to services. The index for final demand services moved down 0.2%. So much less than that for goods. Prices for final demand, less foods, energy, and trade services fell 0.9% in April, the largest decline since the index was introduced in September 2013. For the 12 months ended in April, 
The index for final demand, less foods, energy, and trade services moved down 0.3%, the first 12-month decrease in the survey, I guess. All right, so now looking at the details of this report, uh, the biggest increase in month over month was for trade of personal consumption goods, which was up 2.3%, which is interesting considering people aren't really buying much right now. Um, the biggest decrease was energy exports, minus 32.4%. That makes a lot more sense. Biggest increase year-over-year year was crude consumer foods, 5.2%. And the biggest decrease year-over-year year was energy exports, minus 48.9%. Uh, so, once again, final goods were down 1.3% month-over-month and 1.2% year-over-year. Intermediate goods were down 3.7% month-over-month, down 7.3% year-over-year. Unprocessed goods, which is the first stage of the of the production cycle, down minus 13.7% month-over-month and 28.2% year-over-year. So what this is showing is that the further back you go into the production cycle, the production stage, we are seeing bigger declines for prices. So that suggests that we are probably going to be seeing uh, further downward pressure in consumer prices in the months ahead, which is good news for consumers, but... Uh, not so much for those who produce those goods. All right. And uh, another interesting report came out today. Uh, the EIA Petroleum Status Report showed the first decline in crude oil inventories in 16 weeks, minus 0.7 million barrels. Unfortunately, at the same time, uh, oil prices fell 1% despite the decline in supply. Uh, so um, the, uh, the uh, price in oil didn't respond to the decline in prices or the decline in supply. Okay, now the stock market today was down, I think, 560-some-odd points. Um, and the main reason overall, by far, was the fact that uh, Fed Chairman Jay Powell had some rather negative things to say about the economy, which kind of stung investors, as we've been seeing this nice little rally recently. But uh, they did not take too kindly to his comments, and I will read a summary of his comments here. <clears throat> so he said... Uh, let's see here. Here's a, so here are the summary highlights. So, citing severe declines in economic activity and employment and great uncertainty and significant risks ahead, Jerome Powell warned that additional policy measures may be needed to support the economy, but these apparently will have to be fiscal, not monetary. In other words, it needs to be congressional. Uh, in other words, uh, spending policies, government spending policies. Powell firmly pushed back the option of negative interest rates, which we're seeing in several countries around the world, stressing that views among FOMC members have not changed, that the 17 members of the Federal Open Market Committee are not looking at that option. He noted that all of the members in a rare unanimous agreement were against this policy option back in October, and nothing, despite the virus, has changed. He said evidence on the effectiveness of negative rates is very mixed, and there are plenty of doubters who argue that they are interrupt intermediation. In other words, flows in the banking system, reducing bank profits and reducing credit in the economy. 
The Fed chair praised the government's $2.9 trillion response to date as particularly swift and forceful and conceded that additional fiscal support could be costly but said more fiscal more fiscal help may be needed and would be worth it if it helped avoid long-term economic damage. Powell stressed the importance of avoiding lasting damage to the economy posed by high levels of insolvencies and unemployment. These, he said, could have long-term repercussions, discouraging business investment and resulting in an extended period of low productivity growth and stagnant incomes. He repeatedly cited the lasting damage that would result from the, from the loss of small and medium-sized businesses that took generations to build, which he said are a principal source of the nation's job creation. Powell said the nation's unemployment rate will rise over the next month but, or two, but then, though remaining high, will begin to decline. It will take some time to get back to where we were, he said, but he expects the economy to substantially recover once the virus is under control. That's, that's a big X factor. When is that virus ever going to be under control? Like the fiscal response, Powell said monetary action at the Fed has likewise been swift, breaking down the policy response into four parts. One, quantitative easing, which is outright purchases of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Two, liquidity measures including aggressive support of the discount window and expanded dollar swap lines with foreign central banks. Three, facilities to support the flow of credit to households, businesses, and state and local governments. Four, temporary regulatory adjustments to encourage banks to expand their balance sheets in order to support their household and business customers. So we're kind of backtracking on the Dodd-Frank uh, regulations that were put into effect during and after the last financial crisis. He noted that the Fed's Main Street facility announced in early April to offer liquidity to medium and small businesses, those not having access to the capital markets or loan syndications, is likely to go live in a few weeks. A few weeks? Boy, we, <laughs> we need that money now. I could hope they can step on the gas on that. Powell repeated the importance of preventing liquidity problems from becoming solvency problems. In other words, liquidity is your cash flow and solvency is whether or not you have enough assets to cover your liabilities, i.e. bankruptcy. Okay, that's the uh, recap of the market. Uh, a couple other notes. Uh, the economic outlook is highly uncertain and subject to significant downside risks. So if you're an investor keep that in mind. And he also said the scope and speed of this downturn are unprecedented and much worse than any recession since World War II, as I think we can all attest. And let's see here. I think uh, he said that the Fed is doing everything it can and he wants Congress to do the same. And the Fed is very worried about rising business bankruptcies. Okay, so that's what the Federal Reserve's uh, chairman said today. Now for a look at a few uh, economic notes on some various topics. The global outlook is worsening, warns the IMF. The global economic outlook has darkened since the IMF last month forecast the deepest contraction since the 1930s. Uh, that's what I said two months ago. I said... If we're going to be shutting down all these sports leagues and all these businesses, we're looking at a possible depression. And if you're talking about the uh, steepest contraction since the 1930s, yeah, it looks like the IMF is pretty much coming around to my point of view from two months ago, that we are, if not yet, going to see a depression. Well, depression in terms of the sheer uh, severity, the, the, the deepness of the 
economic contraction, but a depression is really defined as elongated uh, economic malaise. In other words, we're, you pretty much have to be at least a year or more to be considered a depression by definition. But what we're looking at right now could certainly be considered a depression in terms of the steepness of the economic contraction and the impact on businesses, jobs, and of course mental health and other societal impacts. Uh, the IMF said the fund will next uh, next month publish downward revisions to its global forecasts. In mid-April, the fund predicted a contraction of 3% in global output over the course of this year. Emerging and developing economies were expected to contract by 1% and advanced economies by 6.1%. I found that very interesting. Emerging and developing economies are highly dependent on trade. And if global trade is going to be way, way down due to severe lack of demand as well as a lot of travel restrictions, even though even though it's not really on cargo, but still there's a lot of uh, restrictions on travel, um, that makes me wonder why they're only saying it's going to be a 1% contraction for emerging and developing economies. I would think it would be much more than that, especially if these emerging and developing economies uh, end up actually getting hit by the virus harder than they are right now, they don't have, a lot of these countries don't have very good healthcare systems. So if the virus hits them and starts to spread, those economies could crater. Uh, it would be much worse than 1%. So I'm, I'm skeptical about the IMF's forecast for just a 1% contraction. We'll see how that pans out. Obviously, I hope it's not. I hope, hope things are much better, but... Um, I, I think it's going to be worse than their forecasting. The IMF's previous prediction that emerging and developing countries would need $2.5 trillion of financial assistance to see them through the crisis would also be revised upwards, like I just said. All right, moving along. Repayment fears slow demand for small business rescue fund. This is interesting. Demand is slowing for the U.S. government's $660 billion small business rescue scheme, reflecting fears among some enterprises that they cannot meet its requirements for loan forgiveness. One of the main requirements, of course, is keeping your people on the payroll. Uh, so that suggests that even though they're, they have the help is available, they may not take it because they don't want to have to pay it back if they end up uh, reducing their payrolls, which certainly could happen if these shutdowns continue for much longer because people aren't buying their products and aren't going into their stores and their restaurants. So we could be seeing another wave of, of layoffs. Uh, this is kind of an indicator of that because if there's money there from the government and you're not taking it, that tells me that you are very, very worried about the economic outlook for your business so that's that's not good news the demand has slowed since since i guess the uh the outset of this program with only just over 100 billion dollars having been claimed in the subsequent 11 days leaving over 122 billion dollars in the pot so there's money out there if you think you can pay it back and if you are planning on keeping your employees all right, now this uh, uh, little uh, article here, or this little paragraph here, fears raised over Big Brother watching at home. 
Companies are turning to Big Brother-style surveillance to, to stop staff leaking or stealing sensitive data, as millions work away from the watchful eyes of bosses and job cuts leave some disgruntled. Insider threats encompass employees unintentionally sharing private data outside workplace networks and deliberate stealing of data, typically motivated by money or a grudge. More rare, but a growing issue, is intellectual property theft and espionage on behalf of foreign governments, like China. There was an article, there was a news story the other day that China is now trying to hack into, uh, I think it was vaccine information. In other words, China gave us this virus. Now we're trying to figure out a way to get rid of it. Now they're trying to hack into our, our government computers or company computers to figure out what we're doing to get rid of it. Um, <laughs> wow. Their, their treachery just never stops. We got to put these people in place, man. Let me tell you. All right. And here's another uh, paragraph on emerging markets. When Greece restructured most of its debts in 2012, it grudgingly chose to repay in full a smattering of overseas bonds where hedge funds had congregated. Others like Argentina have chosen to fight. One lawyer who has worked with creditors says many investment funds have piled into emerging market bonds in recent years, and the prospect of deep and broad losses could be ruinous to some heavily exposed funds. Again, kind of corroborating what I said about emerging markets. Fidelity's nod to fiduciary duty money managers, old clients, is telling. I don't I have no idea what <laughs> a poorly worded sentence. Traditional asset managers are unlikely to be quite as stubborn or litigious as this person in this article. Sometimes you should probably read something uh, out loud before you try to read it while you're recording a podcast because uh, some of the things that come through the email are not exactly the best grammar. <laughs> I'll just say that. All right, moving along. An article was talking about the term, the Federal Reserve's term asset-backed loan facility of $100 billion. This loan facility offers loans to investors to buy securitized debt, such as credit cards, auto auto loans, student loans, corporate and commercial mortgage-backed securities. So basically, it's it's kind of fueling demand for these securitized uh, for these secured for these asset-backed securities, which then allows banks to uh, lend through credit cards, auto loans, student loans, and corporate mortgage-backed securities because they know that investors will buy them. So basically, the Federal Reserve is supplying the demand for these asset-backed securities. In other words, it's kind of fueling the the credit markets uh, at a time when not a lot of people not a lot of people really want to borrow. So, without this kind of a facility in place, the demand for for these asset-backed securities would be lower, which means more than likely you would see a lower uh, lending from banks for all these different kinds of loans. Bond issuers are seeing improved financing terms, i.e. lower interest rates and probably uh, more favorable covenants, but still grappling with deferred payments and other relief efforts. So on the one hand, they're getting better financing terms, but on the other hand, they're still having problems with uh, deferred payments. I find that interesting. If they're having problems with deferred payments, uh, then why are uh, they getting better financing terms? Hmm. Interesting. Well, uh, I think one of the reasons is because the Fed has stepped in. So, uh, and 
if you have higher higher demand for these loans, then you have higher prices, which pushes down their interest rates. So there's that. The TLAF, the TALF, is open to collateralized loan obligations, um, and Fitch Ratings expects that there's going to be a record amount of corporate downgrades globally this year. Eh, not good news there. The TALF is aimed at keeping credit spreads in check, i.e. keeping interest rates down. And it's only allowing AAA-rated tranches of bond deals as collateral to minimize taxpayer risk, which I talked about yesterday. Like I said, whenever the Fed loses money, uh, that's on the taxpayers to cover it. So it's good to see that they're only allowing AAA-rated tranches, so that keeps uh, taxpayer risk to a minimum. One quick note on the Boy Scouts. This is just my own opinion. Because of the coronavirus, Boy Scouts are not being allowed to put flags on graves at Arlington National Cemetery and other cemeteries around the country. I think this is just an absolute disgrace. Um, my thought is, are they trying to protect the lives of dead people? I mean, <laughs> what on earth is the reason for not allowing Boy Scouts to go out and put flags on graves? Uh, I'm sure you could keep your distance pretty darn well in a giant, uh, giant cemetery. You know, one kid can go and plant flags for one row, the next kid can go and plant flags uh, ten rows away from him, you know. Not too difficult. And they're not allowing it. That, to me, is a disgrace. Okay, just wanted to mention that. Now we have some notes from a very interesting uh, webinar, Zoom call, this morning, from uh, William W. Beach, the Commissioner of the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Here's what he had to say. It's difficult to get data from businesses, especially small and medium-sized businesses right now due to the coronavirus. Response rates are lower than normal. In-person surveys and interviews have been halted. Household, the household survey for, uh, for the employment, he said 67% of data uh, was collected in person in February, 30% in March, and 0% in April. April's data was all collected online. For the establishment survey, in-person collection was much better at 90%, so virtually no change from prior surveys. Statistics still meet standards for reliability, he said. Lower-wage jobs are more impacted by shutdowns. 18 million people classified as temporary layoffs in April of the total 20 million jobs that were lost, so that's the vast majority of people are expecting to be uh, called back to work once the shutdowns end. So that's good news. But again, that kind of is contradictory to the, uh, the information put out by uh, a webinar I watched a couple days ago from a couple other guys who work for the Federal Reserve who basically said most of the, most of the, uh, the uh, people who lost their pay also lost their job. So we have some kind of contradictory reports there. Anyway, a huge increase in number of people dropping out of labor force, no job and not looking. And the JOLTS report, which is uh, a measure of layoffs and, and job cuts and, and, and um, turnover and people switching jobs, uh, he says it's very important to watch as opposed to just the, the monthly employment data as well as the weekly jobless claims data. 
Uh, online data collection provides tremendous cost savings, and that was an answer to a question that I asked. I, I said, so if they are going to be doing, if they can do this data collection online, are, going forth, are they going to do it online to save money, which would save taxpayers because this is a government agency? He said, he said that the savings are tremendous. So who knows? Uh, maybe, maybe they will be doing it more online and saving taxpayers money. That would be good news. 400 people are used to collect prices for the CPI and PPI surveys. He says if we can bring down costs, then um, they can cut payroll for this agency, which, you know, is good for the government, but not so good for the people who lose their jobs. Anyway, uh, limitations can't... Uh, the limitations of collecting data online is the fact that you can't see products and labels and you don't know if, uh, if the price is retail versus a lost leader. In other words kind of you, you can't tell where in the store it's being placed which tells you whether or not it's a lost leader uh, or if it's a if it's a main product offering that they're that they're pricing fewer businesses will want price collectors to come into their store after the pandemic is over so that's kind of interesting um, that might make it there that will make it harder to to get more reliable data the birth death model for businesses which is used for the employment survey is very controversial he said the birth death model has been a major challenge during the pandemic although he didn't say why it's controversial i guess it you know if, kind of kind of tough sometimes to figure out which companies are going out of business and which ones are 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 coming online i suppose there's some kind of a lag and there's also some kind of uh, you know definition as to whether or not it's a real business or as to whether or not it's actually out of business or is it bankrupt or what. So he didn't say why it's controversial, but those are just my guesses. He says the BLS is open to suggestions on how to handle challenges with the model. They are very unsure about this model. And this model is used to determine uh, job losses because uh, they they use that as, as, as part of their... Uh, their estimation of how many people lost their job. So it's a big deal. There's a big difference between people who lost their jobs and pay versus just losing pay, which I already talked about um, before. And if I could just, oh, I'll talk about this in a second. Okay. So he says if they can't collect enough data for food and beverage uh, industries, the data won't be published. Top-line data is not impacted enough to bias adjustments either way for cost-of-living adjustments. That was another question that I asked. So you're talking about Social Security and other programs that are adjusted for uh, cost-of-living adjustments. He says there doesn't seem to be any uh, bias either way that they're going to adjust it for based on the unreliable or the, uh, the fact that they couldn't collect enough data. They will make a major statement if COLA is impacted by a lack of data. Household survey for May will have very interesting results never published before, the household survey for employment. Uh, so that'll be interesting. So we'll have to look out for that. I'm not sure what he, what he means by that, but he says there's going to be some results that have never been published before. Uh, one, I, one thing he said was a survey on gig workers will definitely be changed, expect and he expects interesting insights. Gig workers are those who don't have a job. They're basically working for themselves. Um, household survey doesn't ask if people are on the payroll, only if they worked for pay or profit. Well, that's quite interesting. So if the government calls up and said, and they say, uh, have you lost your pay? 
and somebody says, yeah, then they're counted as losing their job, even though they're still on the payroll. And the government's not even asking if they're on the payroll. So <laughs> that's pretty interesting. Um, that suggests to me that it's a massive, I would think, or at least a, a, a significant overestimation of the number of people who lost their jobs because if you lost your pay, it doesn't necessarily mean you lost your job. So that's that's interesting. And that and that, you know, is going to impact policymaking too. If if it's twenty million people losing their jobs, oh my gosh, we gotta do something, something now, something now. But if it's only two million people who lost their jobs, you know, that's still a lot of people, but not nearly as bad as twenty million, probably wouldn't be quite as much uh interest in passing another three trillion dollar stimulus bill. So if you if you follow this backward, the stimulus bill is for helping people who lost their jobs. Well, if these people didn't really lose their jobs and they're still on the payroll and they're still getting paid, then even if they're not working, why do we need to give them money? If they're getting full pay or even partial pay, well, I don't know how much they're getting made or getting paid, but if you're still getting paid by your company, you don't need government money. So are they planning on giving money to, you know, millions and millions of people who lost their pay? Or, or, or so, okay, so this is what I wanted to get at. This is a little confusing. This is what I want to get at. Uh, I just put this little thing together the other night. You have eight different ways of looking at the employment market. Are people, are people employed? Are they paid? And are they working? And yes or no. So let's go through these. If you're employed, paid, and working, then you are regular, regularly employed. These are my labels. If you are employed and paid but not working, then you're getting paid for not working, which is, I would consider, the good life. If you're employed and not paid but are working, well, then you're getting screwed. <laughs> if you're employed and not paid and not working, then you're furloughed. If you are not employed, are getting paid, and are working, then you are a freelancer, contract, self-employed person, like I said, kind of the gig economy. If you're not employed and paid and working, oh, I just did that one. If you're not employed and paid but not working, then that's like severance or welfare retired. You're getting money for not working, but you don't have a job. If you're not employed, you're not paid, and you are working, <laughs> well, then that's pretty much slavery. And if you're not employed, you're not paid, and you're not working, then you're uh, lazy or left behind or on the edge of society. So those are the eight different ways that you can look at the employment market. So when you're talking about people who lost their, who, who aren't working, but they're at home, and they are still employed, and they are still paid, then you are getting paid for not working. And now you're going to get money from the government. <laughs> Because because the the employment uh, survey says, well, if you I guess if if you didn't lose your pay, then you wouldn't be considered unemployed. But uh, if you are employed and not paid and not working, you are furloughed. So according to the government survey, those people would be considered unemployed or or having lost their job. Because again, they're not asking whether or not you are still on the payroll. Okay, that was a whole lot of uh, blabbing about something, but uh, I hope you understand that there's some intricacies here that 
need to be taken into account, especially considering if we're going to be, you know, passing another $3 trillion stimulus bill. It's a big deal. It's a really, really, really big deal. Back to the webinar notes. He says that March revisions were the largest since 1939, an incredible amount of uncertainty in the data. The longer the economy shut down, the deeper the damage to the labor market will be. The shape of the recovery depends a lot on the capacity to bring, to bring back business. And what I wanted to mention is that I just took a look at the stock market one-year chart for today, uh, or as of today, and it looks right now like my prediction of a uh, square root shape recovery is taking shape. If you look at the stock market, and the stock market is a predictor of, is, is a fairly good predictor of what the economy will do. If you look at a one-year chart of the Dow Jones uh, industrials, it looks like a square root recovery is starting to take shape, or is being uh, priced in by the stock market. So that's interesting. So it looks like I, looks like I might be right on that. Uh, he says, this is not a recession, this is an economic collapse. And we need new ways of thinking. Interesting. And he says, inflation is largely an expectation phenomena. Uh, so basically, if you think prices are going to go up, you're going to go out to the store and buy more stuff, and prices are going to go up. If you think prices are going to go down, then you're going to wait, because you're expecting prices to go down further, so you're not going to buy so then prices are going to go down. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, on either side. And uh, one thing I wanted to mention was that the Federal Reserve said that the uh, that situations where you have deflation is much worse than if you have inflation because inflation you can control with interest rates. Deflation, if people think prices are going to keep going down, the Fed can do nothing about it. Uh they can try to put more money into the economy, but if you have a whole bunch of money uh, from, from the Federal Reserve or if you're a business or whatever and you think prices are going to go down, you're just not going to spend it. So that money is not going to do you any good. So deflation is much worse than inflation. All right. Let's move on now to an update on the coronavirus. As of yesterday... For the world, we had 292,451 fatalities, and the death rate is 6.74%, down slightly from the day before. The growth rate in fatalities day over day was 1.9%, which is the highest we've seen in four days. Uh, so we're starting to rebound here a little bit. And uh, at the seven-day moving average rate of 1.8%, we would be looking at... 410,000 fatalities by the end of the month. And if it kept going, going out to August 4th, which is the IHME model's last day of their forecast, we would be looking at 1.3 million fatalities worldwide. Um, so that's just a simple extrapolation of what we could see if, if the seven-day moving average... Uh, was held uh, throughout that time period. For the United States, as of yesterday, 83,425 fatalities, death rate 5.92%, up from 5.9% yesterday before. Growth rate in fatalities, 2% day over day, which is double the 0.9% we saw two days prior. So that's not good to see. 
still it's fairly low on the, on the very low end of the of the uh, range that seen during the whole pandemic. And if we extrapolate the United States out at 2.1%, which is a seven-day moving average, we have 123,239 fatalities. And I did not uh, forecast that out to August. I'll have to do that tomorrow. Okay, so that's that. And a couple other notes about the coronavirus. Active, deca- active cases in the United States declined for the first time yesterday since the beginning of the pandemic. Hallelujah. That is fantastic news. Is Michael Osterholm listening? The ta- now, what I wanted to also mention is that, uh, you know, this is a very concentrated pandemic. <laughs> Boy, does that sound dumb. Pandemic means it's, you know, all over the place. Global, if you want to call it that, and um, it's—I mean, it's—it's it's touching pretty much every country in the world. There's no doubt about that. But in terms of the severity, the top three countries in in the world—United States, United Kingdom, and Italy—account for fifty percent of all global fatalities. Three countries, half of all global fatalities. That's incredible. So. Not quite sure that pandemic is really the right word for this. Um, a global health catastrophe might be a better way to put it. But um, again, it's a pandemic because it's it's affecting almost every country. But the severity is is not nearly as bad in most countries as it is in just a top few countries. And the same could be said for the United States. The top four states, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Michigan, account for 55% of all U.S. fatalities. Again, very, very interesting. And this is why so many people are upset, very upset, that all these shutdowns are continuing because the vast majority of states aren't seeing nearly the severity in this uh, pandemic as uh, as the top states are. Look at South Dakota and Wyoming, you know. I mean, why would you have to do the same thing in those states that you're doing in New York? It just makes no sense. And they're not, but they're still, you know, having some shutdown measures in place, which even those minimal ones probably don't even aren't even really needed. Uh, and the last thing I wanted to mention is that the IHME model was increased from 137,000 deaths by August 4th to 147,000. So it's up 10,000. So they just keep moving it up and up and up. And um, we don't like to see that, but uh, they're just trying to keep up with the data. Okay, and finally, my uh, tip of the day for how to stay sane during unemployment. Tip number 23 comes under the third commandment of learn new th- or try new things. Tip number 23 is try new TV shows. Well, boy, don't we all have time for that, right? <laughs> We all have time to watch some new TV shows. There's no doubt about that. One of my favorite shows of all, and I'm like literally addicted to this show, is on BBC America. If you have that channel on your TV, every Saturday, all day and all night, into the wee hours of the morning, they have a show called Planet Earth. It's basically wildlife and, and, you know, plants and animals and nature, basically. They do a fantastic job, just fantastic. And I love the narration by... Uh, David Attenborough, he's one of my favorite narrators, and just just 
the stories that they craft around these animals and plants and and uh, other things in nature it, it's just fantastic they do such a good job and the the scenery is just it's just awesome and i like how they do behind the scenes too because they'll show these camera people out and it shows them what they're doing and how this job could be so interesting but so unbelievably brutal when you're going through jungles with ants and all kinds of bugs biting you and then you're going up to the north pole and you're filming polar bears and peng or, you know polar bears in the north pole and penguins in the south pole and uh, how brutally cold it can be just all the different things that they have to go through to make this fantastic show is really incredible another thing you can look at if you have comcast uh i don't know if other um cable uh, companies are offering this but it's a it's a, a streaming show a streaming channel called curiosity it's like on demand you just go on there and just put all you got to do is say curiosity into your voice remote control if you have that and up comes a ton of shows science i think science history and uh science and history there's three main categories science and history i can't remember the, uh, nature i think is the third one so uh a ton of shows so check that out if you can and then Comcast again is now doing this thing called Watchathon for the next week, um, where I believe all their customers get Showtime, HBO, and Stars, and maybe some other movie channels. Maybe uh, I don't know. Those are the three main ones. I think customers are getting those three channels for free for the next week. So check that out if you want. But of course, you know, check out other TV shows that you've never watched before, just to kind of pique your curiosity and do something different, spice up your life. Get your mind off of being unemployed or not working or not having a paycheck or a job or whatever the case may be. And that will, you know, help to keep your keep up your, your, your spirits, which we all need to do right now. That's all I have for today. Again, if you like what you hear, please subscribe or follow me. Please spread the word to your family, friends, neighbors, and relatives. Uh, if you follow me or subscribe, I will mention you on my podcast. And if you'd like to go back and look, listen to previous episodes for my uh, previous tips on how to stay sane during unemployment, you can certainly do that. Uh, this is Ed Cashmark, the Everyday Economist. Please stay safe and stay stay safe and stay sane. Have a good day, and thanks for listening. <laughs>